Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan. For the people that I haven't met, if you didn't know this, you're sort of walking in on a, a part B sermon or a side two sermon. It should still make sense in the context. But if you missed part one, I would encourage you to go check it out on the podcast, um, and it might help today's framework sort of seem a little bit more logical. <clears throat> so briefly, if you remember last week, we spent our time in Mark 6, 1 through 6 specifically, uh, where Jesus goes back to his hometown in Nazareth and, and sort of gets the shaft, right? Initially, he gets there and everyone is excited and amazed at what he's saying. They're amazed at the miracles. They're amazed at the teachings. And then slowly, they start to recognize the familiarity in Jesus and they sort of blow him off. They're like, oh, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus, everyone. And so everybody sort of fades. The text told us that, it, that they fell away or they were offended in the original Greek translation. So we looked at the fact that this people, have, they tried to, to give Jesus an identity based on three different things. First, they tried to identify him based on his occupation. Second, by the fact that they weren't totally sure who his father was, his earthly father was. And third, by his family, by the identities of his family and who he was in the identity of his family. But like we talked about last week, Jesus' identity specifically wasn't found in any one of these things. Jesus found his identity only in the Father, only in relationship with him. So then we took this whole idea and we sort of related it back to the Shape Up series, if you remember, where we found this triangle, right? Where if we're able to embrace relationship with the Father, embrace the up, and clothe ourselves in the identity of his Son, in the identity of Jesus then we're able to walk in obedience to God's will. We're able to walk in God's out dimension of the triangle. And without the up, there can be no in. And without the in, there can be no true and effective and sustainable out. So having spent time last week on the in, it would only make sense that this week, uh, we shift our focus and we spend time looking at the out. Because we're called to reach out to a world. We're not called to just have a healthy up and in relationship with God and then sort of hoard it for ourselves. So then the question is, how do we practically go out and do that? How do we practically take what we're supposed to do and actually do it? So our text this morning is out of Mark 6, 5 through 12. And I had Will read the whole thing because I think it sort of doesn't make sense when you just look at 5 through 12. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them out. So every week that we spend in Mark we ask ourselves a few questions, right? One of the questions I ask myself every week I study for a sermon out of Mark is, why did this story get included in this book? And like, why did the author determine that this was so important that he needed to, to document it here? So when, if you remember back from last week too, I told you when I first read Mark 6, 1 through 12, that's the original text I was assigned. So when I first read that text, it appeared that there was this big break. There was like the rejection in hometown and then there was the send out of the 12. And I wasn't sure how the two totally meshed. So it led me to ask the question of why now? Like why would Jesus decide right after his disciples watch him get rejected that this is the perfect time to start this big ministry, right? And send these guys out on their own. And it seemed random at first, but the more and more and more I studied it, the more and more and more it made sense. So I have a few theories. Um, first, is that in healthcare, uh, I'm going to relate it back to healthcare because I work in healthcare. So in healthcare, we have this sort of mantra that we use when we're teaching students or residents. It might be a little terrifying, actually, if you're not in healthcare. <laughs> but the mantra is called see one, do one, teach one. So the idea is that when you're approaching a new skill or a new technique, that first you have to see one. You have to observe it being done. You have to observe it being modeled for you in order that you would know what it actually should look like. 
then once you've, once you've uh, seen it, then you can actually do one. You should do one. You should get your hands dirty. You should jump right in because the reality is that we learn a lot more, a lot faster when we're actually doing something ourselves with our hands, right? We're actually jumping in rather than just watching someone explain it to us over and over and over. So I think about it like this. My family is a big family of golfers. So if I, if I uh, subscribe to the golf channel and I love watching golf, but I'd never actually swing a club, then odds are when I get to the course, I'm gonna be a really, really bad golfer, right? I may have seen it done a thousand times, but if I've never actually swung the club myself, then I don't have the muscle memory that is required to actually be consistent and accurate. Now, if I go out and I decide I'm gonna watch the golf channel and then every day after watching it, I'm gonna go out and take what I learned and actually do it and actually put it into practice, then that muscle memory happens, then I start to get it. Then, to take it a step further, further, once you have actually shanked a few balls out of bounds, and once you've missed a few two-foot putts, and once you've moved more sand than a dump truck, you can finally take all your mistakes and you can correct them, right? And after you've taken these mistakes and corrected them, then you're qualified to teach. You can get your pro card. You can start teaching people because you've been there and you've done that and you've made some mistakes. You put your hands on a golf club and you know how to teach them what to do. So at this point in the story, my opinion is that Jesus saw two things in his disciples in the reality of this, this uh, section of text that led him to say, okay, it's time. It's time that they be sent out. So first, I think that, I, well, I don't think, I know the disciples had been walking with Christ for a while. Like, they had seen him do a lot of stuff. They had seen him perform miracles. They had seen him be hyper-effective and amass huge crowds that followed him around and mobbed him wherever he went. They had seen him be rejected. They had seen him do miracles on other people. They had seen him do miracles with them. So they had been seeing and seeing and seeing and seeing. And I think that Jesus said, you've been seeing long enough. They'd been observing Jesus, but Jesus knew that that wasn't going to be enough. He knew that he wasn't going to be around forever. And if you look at the grand scheme of his life, he's towards the end at this point, right? He's, I don't know, maybe 31, 32 so he knew that it was time for them to start doing because if they didn't do a few, if they didn't learn how to celebrate their successes and how to learn from their failures, that then when Jesus was gone, they would never be able to teach. So recently I heard this pastor that I really like, uh, his name is Stephen Furtick. I heard him say, strength when not given an assignment will quickly turn to apathy. If they didn't start doing if they didn't exercise all the muscles that they had been building by seeing, then they would essentially waste away. They would become disinterested and unexcited about the mission that was actually in front of them. So it was time that they progress in the process. It was time that they move to the next step, that they start doing one, because these 12 men were going to be tasked with changing the course of humanity. They were going to be tasked with spreading the gospel around the entire world. So if they just were like, we'll just, we'll just watch a few more, Jesus, we're just going to hang back. Then they, wouldn't, they would never have progressed in the process. They would never have been ready. And so Jesus saw in them, even though maybe they were like, I don't know if we're quite ready for this, Jesus. He was like, no, you're ready. The second thing that I think led Jesus to decide that now was the time, it correlates with why this, I'm going to move this thing. It's a little, a little hot. The second thing, I think it correlates with why it's specifically placed here in the book of Mark and really in the chronological order of how things happened. I think that this is why it was placed here. I think that in the moment of being rejected in his hometown, not because of the message he was teaching, not because of the miracles he was performing, but because of the man that he was. 
after being rejected in his hometown, I think Jesus probably looked around at his disciples and thought, you know what? My power and authority with their faces, and maybe this would have gone a little bit differently. I think in that moment that he saw that because of who they were physically in the flesh and who he was physically in the flesh, that maybe they would be more primed to reach a target population if they were armed with his power and authority. They might be more effective than he was if armed with the power and authority that could only come from Christ. So as he's thinking about these two things, I have to, well, that's what I think. He was thinking about these two things. He's rolling them around in his mind, and he's like, you know what? What better time than now? So what does this mean for us? Well, it means two things. It means, first, we have been afforded the opportunity to have a profound up relationship with God, right? And we can find our identity in Jesus, in his son, but it doesn't stop there. Because if that was all Christ had modeled for us, if all he had done was come and say, I have relationship with the Father, and I am Christ, and I know that, so I'm done. If that's all he had said, then the world would be totally different today, right? See, it's from our up that we draw our in, and it's from our in that has got to flow and out. It was the foundation of Jesus' ministry. He lived in perfect communion with God the Father, and he stood rock solid in his own identity, and out of that could only flow one thing. It could only flow obedience to the Father's will. So he taught, and he healed, and he restored, and he resurrected all out of his obedience to God's will, all out of the overflow that he experienced with the relationship with the Father and his identity as a son. So now I think he was looking at his disciples and he was saying, it's time you go out. It's time you complete your triangle. Get a little hands-on experience. Probably make a few mistakes. So as I started thinking about this, I thought, you know what? Some of us are standing in a space where we've been seeing one for a long time. Like seeing one. We've been seeing plenty, right? (laughs) And it's time that we stop playing the, like, I'm a baby Christian card and actually start doing some work with our hands. Because you're never going to learn from your mistakes, and you're never going to be able to progress to the step where you someday can teach somebody something unless you get your hands a little bit dirty. And for others of us, I think we've been doing and doing and doing and doing, and we've learned from a lot of mistakes, and we've gained a lot of knowledge, but it's time that we start teaching. It's time that we take an active role in the discipleship of people in our communities, in people in our church, in our workplaces, in our schools, our neighbors. It's time that we start discipling the people around us because we've got something to teach. So the second way that this applies to us specifically, and I alluded to this last week, is that some of us might be uniquely positioned or primed to impact places that others may not be. Because God is capable of taking our sort of messy, broken, pre-Jesus selves and using that to his glory. And as a matter of fact, he's capable of taking whatever we're willing to give him, whatever is about us, whoever we are, and using that to his glory. So in Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose in all things. So if we finally surrender self, right, if we finally lay down our own agendas, if we finally stop thinking of how we think things should look, 
or start, stop making excuses as to why we can't do one, and really ask ourselves what breaks our heart, then we may just hear him call us back into places that we've already been. And it might be places that you would rather not revisit, honestly. But this time, when he sends you back there, you go back with a different perspective. It's different. That's what makes it different. That's what makes you primed to impact that area, is the perspective that you have. So if I walk onto the military base, I'm going to try to get this right. I walk onto the military base, and I start preaching the gospel where Eric works, right? It falls way differently than it does from a guy with a guy with earrings and a beard. It falls way differently than it does if Lieutenant Colonel Eric Gonzalez starts preaching the gospel in that hangar. Am I right? It's different because he's primed for that. His uniform, his career, his familiarity makes him primed to reach those people. Sometimes in order to reach a 15-year-old, it's going to take another 15-year-old. Sometimes in order to walk somebody through great grief and help them find Jesus in the process, it's going to take someone who has grieved greatly or is currently grieving greatly. God will take our past and he will take our present and he will take our future and he will use it all to sort of position us to where we will be the most effective for his kingdom. He will send us out. He will cast us out at just the right time to just the right people, but we have to decide if we're willing to go or not. If we've been centered in a relationship with the Father, if we're drawing our identity, clothing ourselves in an identity of His Son, claiming the power and authority of Christ that we've been given, then we are uniquely positioned to manifest all of that as obedience, as walking in obedience to His will and as reaching out. So what does it practically look like? That's the question, right? Well, I love it uh, when I find some red letters in the Bible that just sort of like slapped my face. And I told Greg at one point when we were selecting a text out of the book of Mark, I said, Greg, I want to preach some red letters, man. (laughs) And I got it, sort of unintentionally got it this week. But Jesus lays it out really clearly when he sends out the 12 disciples. He lays out what this looks like practically. So first thing is he sends us out two by two. He sends the disciples out two by two. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because typically this gets a lot of love, like people love to go back to this. So I'm going to sum it up for you in one sentence. You were never intended to do it alone, ever, any of it, right? Adam had Eve. The disciples had a partner. You were never intended to live life alone. And if you need a reminder of this, I taught a sermon when we were doing the Shape Up series that was on the inn of the triangle called Hashtag Church Me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's on, the, it's on the, web, the website and the podcast. If you haven't heard it and you want a little refresher on community and real Christ-centered community, I encourage you to go check it out. So the next thing Jesus does is he gives them three pieces of advice. Three things that will really help them effectively do out. Take their up and in and reach out. And I think that to some extent, We've lost view of how to do this in the Americanized church today, right? Because Jesus doesn't say in Mark 6, 7 through 12, he doesn't say, bake cookies and print out lots of who is Jesus flyers and be sure you hand them out. Make sure there's live music and a designated prayer area, right? <laughs> he doesn't, that's not what he says. So I think that so often we trade living a lifestyle of obedience and living a lifestyle of evangelism for designated outreach events, 
We limit our quarter, we limit our ability to reach out, our ability to clothe ourselves with a relationship with the Father and the identity of His Son, and we limit it to quarterly outreach events where we sort of like, ah, that's just cheap. It's like we try to peddle Jesus to strangers, and then we move on with our lives, right? We're like, here, take this flyer, I'm out. And we're gone. And we think that that's reaching out, but the reality is that we're cheaping cheapening living a lifestyle of evangelism, living a lifestyle of outreach, of actually modeling for the world what it looks like to be a follower of Christ and letting them say, you know what, that's attractive. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to spend some time looking at the three things that Jesus tells his disciples, the three pieces of advice that he gives his disciples. So the first one is he says, Uh, to the twelve. He says, take nothing with you for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money for your belts. Wear sandals. Okay, he says, wear some shoes. (laughs) Don't, I mean, don't mean nothing. Wear some shoes, but don't put on two tunics. And it just sort of seems cruel a little bit at first when I read it, right? I mean, this is the first time they're going out by themselves. This is the first time they've ever had to do this. And Jesus says, don't pack a lunch, don't pack a suitcase, don't pack your pockets full of cash, and don't try to put on a bunch of shirts thinking that I won't notice that you're wearing like 14 shirts for your trip. (laughs) He had them all figured out from the get-go. So I imagine that if I'm a disciple and Jesus is like, I'm going to send you out, I'm like already a little scared. I'm like, oh, okay. And he says, as he's talking and telling me he's going to send me out, I've already started making a packing list in my mind right? He's talking and I'm like, okay, I got to go by the store. I'm going to get two, I got to get two shirts. I got to get some snacks. I got to get some snacks for the trip. I got to run by the ATM. I got to get a lot of cash. I'm going to just throw it all in a bag and I'm ready. Jesus, that's all I got to do. So the instruction to take nothing had to just totally stop the disciples in their tracks, right? It had to be sort of shocking. I imagine that they were all sort of like, is he serious? <laughs> but he was totally serious. And why was he totally serious? Why would Jesus wa- tell them to walk into a town un- empty-handed? Why would he send them out on mission empty-handed? He would send them out because they had to learn to trust God and God alone for provision. They had to learn that everything they needed was already found in the Father. That God was willing and able to provide for them. That he would provide food for their mouths and clothes on their backs and roofs over their heads. Psalm 34.10 says, The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Lack no good thing. There is no lack to God's surplus. Psalm 81.10 says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. I love that. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So if we're talking about supporting scripture, then the best piece of supporting scripture we have, and what we really have to talk about, is the fact that Jesus had already taught them this lesson in sermon form. They had already seen it. It was time that they do it. So in Matthew 6, 31 and 32, which chronologically in the story of things comes before this moment, Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
They'd heard it said, but it was time that they lived the lesson. They had to separate themselves from all the things the world told them that they would need in order to go out on mission. They had to leave it all behind and trust that God and God alone would provide for them. They had seen one, and now it was time that they do one. So Jesus sends them out, but he sends them out empty-handed. So the more I thought about this, the more it became crystal clear to me that if Jesus would have sent them out with two check bags and a carry-on, right? If he would have sent them out and they would have had plenty of provision for the trip, then they would have missed the opportunity to see God provide for them. They would have leaned on what they brought, on their cash, on their food, on their clothes, and it would have been way too easy for them to make it about them. To somehow think that all the fruit that was being produced on this mission was their fruit. But remember that John 15 that we talked about last week, it says that a branch can only produce fruit when it's attached to the vine. That our obedience in its purest and most sustainable form, it can only flow out of an identity found in Christ. And our identity can only be claimed by a desire, pursuit, and access to relationship with the Father. It's the whole premise of the triangle. And so if we're, in, if, we, if we're in relationship with the Father, but we try to skip an identity in Christ, and we try to go straight to the obedience and straight to bearing fruit out of our own provision, then we'll fail miserably every single time. Because the truth is that if we were capable, this, this blew my mind, if we were capable of being obedient out of our own identity, skipping straight from up to out, if we were capable of doing that effectively, then it would totally negate the need for a Savior right? If we as a human race were capable of complete and perfect obedience apart from an identity that was rooted in Christ and in Christ alone, then it would make the life, teachings, and death of Christ essentially meaningless. We aren't, though. We aren't capable of sustainable obedience of our own fruition. So when the branch bears fruit, it's only because of the vine to which it belongs. So in order for the disciples to see this, Jesus says to them, he says, take nothing. Take nothing with you. Be reliant upon only A, your relationship with the Father, B, your identity in me and what I've taught you, and C, the weight of the message that you take with you. That's really all you need. Because he knew that if they had cash, they would rent a hotel room, right? And if they had clothes, they would just keep changing, and if they had food, they would just eat of their own supply. They wouldn't have to ask anyone for support. They wouldn't have to talk to anyone. They could totally isolate, consume what they brought, and fail to share what they came to share. They wouldn't actually have to talk to anyone. And then when their cash was gone and their clothes were dirty and all their food was eaten, they would just turn around and go home. And they'd be like, I don't know what happened, Jesus. But the hotel had cable. With no provision, they were actually going to have to talk to people to ask for support and ask for help for a place to stay, for food, for clothes. And out of this would come the ability to share the gospel because what they were doing was not of the world. People would be like, what do you mean you came here empty-handed? They would actually get a chance to preach the message that they came to preach to people that they were sent to reach. So this blew my mind. This is the illustration, okay? I have some bags, and I want Rob... Will you come up here? I have, I, I'm really excited about this. I'm glad you were sitting in the front. <laughs> okay, so what I want you to do is, I want you to pick up, pick up these two bags, one in each hand, and then bring them over here. Okay. All right, and don't forget your coat, because you're going to need a coat, too. And then I washed this apple before I came. I want you to bite it. 
bite it. You got it? Okay. So now, so now, Rob, since you're since you got your own stuff and you're ready for your trip, I want to give you this. I want to give you a hundred bucks. So just, just go ahead. But you can't. You can't receive what I brought for you. You can't receive what I want to give you because you're so full of your own crap that you can't get this. Now, now imagine this. Now imagine this. Rob meets me on the road, right? Rob meets me on the road and he's on his travel. And I'm like, what's up, dude? I wouldn't normally pick with Rob, by the way. But when he's got his hands full, I'm like, what? Right? So Rob, Rob can't defend himself. Not even against me, right? Maybe, maybe. Yeah, you, you can be done. You can be done if you want. You can have the apple, though. <laughs> yeah. So, so Rob, Rob can't defend himself when he meets me on the road, right? I might be smaller than him, but I can take him if his hands are full. He's packing around all of his own baggage. Now, what if he meets me on the road and I'm totally broken and I need help, right? He can't help me. He can't do work. His hands are full. It's full of his own crap. He's not ready to receive. He's not, he's not ready to receive necessary provision, yes, but he's not ready to receive the extreme surplus that God may have waiting for him. He can't. His hands are already full. He can't defend himself. He can't do work because we're too busy carrying around all of our own stuff to receive what God might have for us emotionally or spiritually or physically because we didn't heed the warning. We didn't just go empty-handed, right? So if we set out to be obedient out of our own supply, rather than allowing our obedience to flow out of a relationship with the Father and an identity in the Son, it won't be sustainable. We have to leave behind everything that our own minds or that the world tells us. We will need to be effective at mission, and we actually just have to trust God. That's it. Seems simple, but it's not. All this in order that we would be solely reliant upon him for provision, that we would trust him to accept our, our obedience, to pave the way in front of us, and then to bear an abundance of fruit so that he could be glorified, not us. And also so that we would be walking in obedience to him with outstretched arms, ready to receive whatever it is that he might have for us, ready to defend ourselves in the event of an attack, which will definitely come, by the way. So we have to go, we have to take nothing with us. to leave it all behind. Everything the world tells you you're going to need in order to effectively go out and do mission, you don't need it. All you need is relationship with the Father and an identity in his Son and some obedience, some willingness to take a step. So after he establishes what they'll be taking with them, which was not much, right? I would imagine the disciples are all sort of thinking, so is this like an overnighter? Or is this like a weekend, like a long weekend? How long, how long are we going to be gone, Jesus? So it only seemed logical that he would address this question next. So he says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if I'm a disciple, and the question I'm wondering is, how long am I going to be there? And he says, until you leave, I'm like, huh. Okay, I'm dissatisfied. I'm dissatisfied. Maybe a little disappointed with that answer. Because I'm hoping he's going to say, Ryan, you're going to be there until Saturday mid-morning. And I'm like, okay, mid-morning. That's 10. I'll be out by 10. <laughs> but as I started looking at this, and sort of in no uncertain terms, 
it became clear that there's a break between what Jesus sees as time and what I or the disciples may have seen as time, right? So if you remember from the Shape Up series also, a different shape, the Greek language has two words for time. The first one is chronos, time, that is sequential, that's successive, that's linear. It's chronological. Chronos time says that it's 12.30, it's actually not, it's 1.15, but don't worry about the clock. It's 1.15 now, and in 60 more seconds, it will be 1.16. That's chronos time, right? So the reality is that Adam and Eve were living in Kairos time with God. They were living on God's time, and then they chose to eat the fruit. As soon as they eat the fruit, they get an expiration date. Death is introduced on the planet, and when death is introduced and people get an expiration date, we shift from Kairos time to Kronos time. And then we're stuck there. So the second word for time is, like I said, it's Kairos. Kairos translates to the right or opportune moment, a supreme moment. Kairos time is God's time. And 2 Peter 3.8 says, But do not overlook this fact, beloved. I, I just love how so that's in there. I, don't, I read it like that every time. Anyway. <laughs> do not look, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. This is not the calendar that we operate on. And it's sort of frustrating, right? Because we're bound to Kronos time. So when your time, when your linear time meets with God's nonlinear time, the kairos intersects the chronos, we have this unique ability to see and hear him speaking to us very clearly. And we hope that our life will sort of look like a slinky over and over and over in the kairos, that we're in the chronos just long enough to experience another kairos moment and then spin off into the kairos again. But the reality is that my life maybe looks, looks more like a string of Christmas lights, and probably they're like big Christmas lights. <laughs> you know, like a period of Kronos, and then some Kairos, and then a big period of Kronos, and then the Kairos, because my human tendency is to focus so much on the Kronos that I actually miss the Kairos. As I'm standing there looking at the clock going, oh man, it's 1.15. Whew. I got somewhere to be, Jesus. We better wrap this up. So I think it's unique that we have Jesus standing here, and, and remember, if Kairos is God's time, and Kronos is the time of man, then Jesus is both fully God and fully man, then Jesus is sort of translating, right? Because he understands and lives in both the Kairos and the Kronos. So Jesus is translating Kairos into Kronos for the disciples before he sends them out on a mission, telling them how long they're going to be gone. So if Jesus would have said to the disciples, if he would have just given them an assignment in their chronos and said, you're going to be gone for six days, three hours, and 32 minutes. Then at six days and three hours, the disciples are like, we better, we better start packing this up, fellas. We got to get back. They would have missed the kairos moment that was headed their way for six days, three hours, and 33 minutes because they were too focused on the clock to actually focus on God. So how does Jesus avoid this? How does he translate the kairos into the chronos and totally derail the view, their, their own view of time? He uses a tactic that I use often, and it's this, this like seriously wrecked me on my Monday night. He uses a tactic that I use often on my son. <laughs> when Matthew asks me, hey dad, when's dinner going to be ready? I say, when it's on the table. Or he says, hey, did we're driving somewhere. Hey, Dad, when are we going to be there? I said, when we get there. So as the disciples are all standing there saying, how long are we going to be gone? Or at least our faces are saying, how long are we going to be gone? Jesus' reply is, 
until you leave. Until your work is done, that's how long you're going to be there. So stay until your work is done. Don't look at the clock. Stay till your work is done. Because God is not bound by your chronos. He doesn't function on your chronos. So I can't tell you you'll stay till mid-morning on Saturday. We have to stop thinking that the event wraps up at 8 p.m. Or that church is only from 12 to 1 on Sundays because God doesn't work under the same assumptions of time that we do. And if we're focused and fixated on the chronos, then we will miss the kairos and we'll actually be walking in obedience to our time and to our will and not his. The branch will be standing there saying to the vine, sure, I'll bear fruit from 12 to 1 on Sundays. Right? The branch will be standing there saying, I will spread the gospel, but only from 3 to 5 at Trunk or Treat this quarter. Talk to me next quarter, because i got places to be. In these instances, we surrender a couple of hours or maybe days at best, but we do not surrender the entirety of our lives. We lay down one hour at the cross, and we really keep our fingers crossed that Kairos falls during that one hour... So if you're asking yourself, like if you're wondering how long should I stay, the answer is until your work is done. If you're wondering how long it's going to take us to develop a full mission and vision statement, the answer is until we develop a full mission and vision statement. If you're wondering how long you're going to have to preach the gospel to your 15-year-old son or daughter before they finally get it, the answer is until they finally get it. God doesn't operate on the same chronos time that we do. And this mission of making disciples of all nations that's given to us as the Great Commission... It was never intended to be an event that is held to recruit new believers or new church members or to hand out flyers so that I can get out of there and get home. It's a call to walk in obedience, to share the gospel with the world around us as a life of outreach. All day, every day, to go, yes, absolutely. To trust God for provision, yes, Absolutely, but to stay until our work is done for as long as it takes. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to think about this week. This week. I want you to meditate on it this week and think to yourselves, am I willing to stay until my work is done? I don't even know what your work is, but you probably do. Are you willing to stay for as long as it takes or do you got somewhere to be? Somewhere more important. Are you willing to trade, or will, will you trade your chronos? Will you trade your linear, sequential time for a, for a state of kairos? Will you say, you know what, God? I trust you for provision. My hands are open. My watch is somewhere else. And I'm just going to give you the ability, give you my time, and allow you to speak. So at this point, after telling the disciples what, that they'll need to trust God for provision, that they'll need to stay until their work is done, Jesus has one more piece of advice for them. He tells them in verse 11, he says, And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. What I think he's saying here is that if we're going to be effective at spreading the gospel, if we're going to be 
able to run this race with endurance, then we can't take things too personally. He tells the disciples, he says, don't dwell on rejection. Because he knew they would be rejected, right? By like the whole world, constantly. And if they weren't being rejected by the world, then they were probably not doing it right. Honestly. He knew that they were absolutely going to encounter people that didn't exactly welcome them with open arms, but if they were focused on the rejection, if they traded their identity in Christ for an identity of rejection, then this whole mission would sort of halt to a stop. Because one of two things would happen. Either A, they would sort of like hang their heads and be like, oh man, they didn't listen to what I had to say, so I'm just not going to say it anymore. They'd be afraid that they'd be rejected again, right? Because it doesn't feel good. No one's like, man, I can't wait to be rejected. Either that or they would stop their mission and they'd say, you know what, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to cram this thing down your throat because I'm right. And until you see that I'm right, I'm going to stay right here. Either way, the mission stops. Either way, it's totally held up. Because whether they go into kicked puppy mode or into terminator mode, either way, they've made the mission about them. The mission's about them, not about Christ. They would have taken a message that was so greatly and clearly God's and they would have said, No, this is about me. This is about my pride, me being right. They would have abandoned their identity in Christ, and so their obedience would have had no choice but to suffer. And the problem is that at this point, the whole world needs to hear the message. I mean, it still does today, but at this point, it's a pretty limited group of people that have even heard the name Jesus, right? So the whole world needs to hear the message. So if they get hung up in one house or one town one family with one person, then everyone downstream gets deprived of the message. So they make the message about them, they make the mission about them, and then everyone else suffers because of it. They couldn't take it personally. They couldn't dwell on the rejection. And I found myself referring back to the message from last week, because when Jesus encounters rejection, when we see Jesus encounter rejection in his hometown, what's his response? Does he dwell on it and pout and be like, hmm? not going to do this anymore. He doesn't do that. Or does he try to force seeds to grow in bad soil? Nah, he's like, well, prophet's not without honor, except in his own hometown. See you guys later. And he moves on. He's got more people to save. He's got more missions to do. And I thought about this. These 12 men that Jesus is discipling, they're essentially responsible for changing the, the scape of the world, right? They spread the gospel around the entire world. And once Jesus is gone in the book of Acts, we really start to see their ministry ramping up. We start to see them seeing one and doing one and teaching one. So this moment where they're sent out to do one for the first time, where they're sent out on their first outreach ministry, it's a huge moment. It's the beginning of an outreach that would change the scope of human history that would change salvation for countless individuals, including ourselves, right? So don't miss that this whole thing, this whole ministry, it was born out of an immediate stance of rejection. Jesus is rejected and says, oh well, I'm just going to go change the whole view of human history in this one moment with this one act. Had Jesus focused on the rejection of his hometown, Rather than the mission that was at hand, everything would be hugely different today, substantially different. The 12 never would have been sent out, maybe, at least not at this time. 
So the reality is that when we take a step back from these three things, these three pieces of advice, and we look at them as sort of a 10,000-foot view, and we say, what's the overarching theme? There is one, right? The overarching theme is that we have to trust God for provision because it isn't about us. It isn't about our stuff. It isn't about what we can pack. It isn't about our our willingness or ability to provide. It's about walking in obedience to God's will all day, every day. It isn't about us. Stay until the work is done. It isn't about you. It isn't about your time or your agenda or what you have going on this afternoon. It isn't about your will. It's about walking in obedience to God's will all day, every day. And don't dwell on rejection because it isn't about you. It isn't about us. It isn't about our pride. It's about walking in obedience to God's will all day, every day. It isn't about us. We're part of the story, and the story has great weight in our hearts and in our minds and our souls, right, for eternity. But we are not the focal point of the story. And if at any point in time as we're taking the gospel out, we become the focal point, then we missed it. If life spring becomes the focal point and not people coming to Christ, then we missed it. If my rejection and my own pride becomes the focal point, then I've missed it. Because we take the gospel out so that he would be glorified. And as we learned last week, the only way that we can really keep this perspective, the only way that we can really effectively do out is if we are firmly rooted in the in, if we are firmly rooted in our identity that is not of ourselves, but is that of Christ. Then, once we finally, fully, completely, and constantly, constantly surrender our lives to him, we can finally start to walk in obedience. And the branch can finally start to bear fruit. And we can see the people of our city, of our state, of the world around us finally start to change. And I think about the disciples and the reality that these 12 guys changed the world, and I think sometimes I can minimize it, right? Like, I can make it so much, so, so illogical, right, that it's not plausible. My visions of grandeur, that this whole state would be changed, can become um, not plausible. But consider this, they didn't even know how far the ends of the earth were. They didn't even know the shape the earth was, but they were like, ends of the earth, okay. I guess we'll go, that's precisely where we were called to take the gospel, So they, walking in obedience, finding their identity in Christ, those 12 men changed the course of human history. Not because they held events, not because they attended church on Sundays, because they lived a life of obedience. They walked in accordance to God's will. So as I thought about this, I started thinking, you know, if I surrendered myself 24 hours a day and walked in accordance to God's will, what does this look like for me? Right? Because I don't. I don't. I wish I did. I wish I could stand here and say, yes, absolutely. But I don't know where he might take us if we do that. But I know that our hands would be outstretched because we wouldn't have any bags. I know my pockets would be empty, wouldn't have any cash. My watch battery would probably be dead. It is right now. But it probably would also be dead then. And I know that my pride would be in the back seat. Why? Because it's not about me. It's not about my money. It's not about my pride. It's not about any of that. So if I'm really walking in obedience to God's will, then I've probably seen this. And I'm like, oh, well. Don't know what time it is. It's like when you're on vacation. I don't know. 
What day is it? Doesn't really matter. So as I close, I, as usual, have a few reflective questions for us, but I'm not going to put them on the screen, and I'm not going to expound upon them, but what I want to do is I want to pray through each one of them. I want to spend some time, I'm just going to cast them out there and let them fall where they will because this question of will I stay until the work is done has been wrecking me all week and I don't know where that falls for you. I don't know where any of this falls for you because I don't know all the work that you all are doing. I don't know what's going on at home or with your friends or with your neighbors, with your families. I don't know. So let's just spend some time in prayer together. If I could just get uh, heads bowed, eyes closed, just to minimize distraction center ourselves. The first question is, see one, do one, teach one. Where are you at? Maybe more importantly, what's next? So Father God, you would have us each at different points in our journey, at each at different points in our relationship with you and our understanding of you and God some of us are just seeing some of us have just seen for the first time and and we need to see we need to just be with you God and I just pray that if this is the first time someone is seeing a glimpse of you if this is the first time someone is embracing their identity in you that God you would just give them the space to sit and see to look at what it looks like to sit in what it feels like and to embrace your presence in this season of their life. God, I just pray that you would wash over them. I pray that you would surround them with the doers, God. That there would be community of people around them that are just so active and eager to serve, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And God, if there's people that are ready for the next step, then move them out. Because we've got to get our hands dirty. If we're ever going to learn, if we're ever going to progress, if we're going to ever move forward, God, we just surrender ourselves to you. We surrender our hands to you, our ability to do work to you, God, that you would be glorified. And Lord God, I just ask that you would be preparing the people that are doing tremendous amount of work to take their experiences and teach to disciple those around them, God, that we would be a church of disciples of Christ, making disciples of Christ in our church, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, everywhere we go, God. I pray that your light would shine through us and that we would be able to see and do and teach all of the people that we come into contact with throughout the week. The next question is, as God sends you out, will you trust him and him alone for provision? God, you are so willing and able and capable to provide, and I don't know why I, I don't trust that sometimes. I don't understand it. I know there is no lack to your surplus, God, but, but still I try to do it on my own will. I try to do it of my own provision, and Lord God, I don't want that anymore. I pray that as we move out as a church, that it would be you and you alone that we depend on, that it would be you and you alone that is the provider of all of the things that we will need to effectively do mission for you, God. That we would open our mouths wide that they would be filled. That we would lack no good thing because you know all of the stuff that we need. So God, we just stand here with open arms. We trust that you will provide 
in whatever you are about to take us into. Help us to leave all of our own baggage behind because it pales in comparison to what you might have for us. Third is, are you willing to stay until your work is done for as long as it might take? Father God, you know, you know that we're bound to Kronos. You know our propensity to drift back to it, to schedule out every moment of our lives, so busy that there's no space for anything else. And God, I just ask that you would strip us of that. I ask, God, that if church is supposed to go until 11 p.m., that if we're supposed to be here in community until 11 p.m., until whenever you would have us leave, God, that we would stay until the work is done. That whatever mission you send us out on, whatever group of people you send us out to, whatever it is that you have for us, God, that we would have the courage to stay until your work is done. That we wouldn't put a cap on it and say we're only willing to stay this long. But God, we trust you for provision and so we are willing to stay until the work is done because we know you'll provide. If we know you'll provide, then how can we not be willing to stay? Last is, are you willing to surrender your pride and persevere through rejection? Father God, it is not about us. But so often we take it and we make it about us. You know this. God, I just ask that you would just give us the strength to lay it at the cross. That you would just be with us mentally and physically. That you would allow us to not become prideful of the message that you've given us, but rather to just spread it to those that will receive it, to plant seed in the soil, even if that doesn't mean that we get to see the harvest. Father God, help us to not dwell on rejection because we know it's coming. We know we'll encounter it. We know we will encounter obstacles. And Father God, I just ask that you would build us up, that our identity would be found in only your son and in our relationship with you, and that out of that, the rejection wouldn't really matter because we are not an identity of rejection because Christ lives in us. And Father God, I just thank you for this time. I just thank you for the ability to be together like this. I thank you for Mike and Jackie and the ability to just ordain new elders that would serve this body, God, that would be seers and doers and teachers and would shepherd this flock well. We pray for safety for them as they travel. And Lord God, I just ask that this word would be just a seed I ask that you would attend it, that you would water it, and that you would harvest it in whatever space that looks like, whatever time, whatever way that looks like, God, that this would manifest itself in your kingdom. We love you, and we praise you, and it's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.